Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, we want to hear you speak to us this morning. We need to hear your voice. And we pray that you will speak to us what we need to hear right now today. But also, would you graciously speak what we will need to hear for the future in times to come. For Jesus' sake. Amen. In a famous line from the film script for The Third Man by Graham Greene, the central character makes this comment. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they have brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. (laughs) Now, the comment is not pro-Italian, nor is it anti-Swiss. It merely suggests that it's the tough times, rather than the easy ones, which may be the more fertile ground for creativity. And putting that in a spiritual context, suffering may actually be the place where we learn most about God and where we undergo the most personal transformation. You see, what matters is not the circumstances themselves, but our response. Well, after a few weeks' respite, we're back in the book of Job. I hope you've still got it open in front of you. Uh, That's page 533, chapter 32. As far as we know, Job is still on his ash heap, and his suffering continues. We do not know how long for, weeks, maybe months, almost 30 chapters in the Bible. And finally, Job has thrown down the gauntlet before God. Claiming that he is innocent, Job challenges God to appear and prove him guilty. Let the Almighty answer me, he cries. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. This is a moment of high tension. Who is Job, a mere mortal, to claim to be blameless. And who is Job to demand that Almighty God should answer him? Stunned silence from the three men. And instead of God appearing, a new voice is heard. Up stands Elihu, a young man who has evidently been listening in on Job's interaction with his three friends. Now, he has a strong spiritual pedigree. His name, Elihu, means he is my God. And he's descended from Buz, a nephew of Abraham. But this Elihu has held back from speaking until now out of deference for these older men. But now, Anger drives him to speak. Verse 2 begins literally, then burned with anger, Elihu. 
and four long speeches pour out of his mouth. His passion is to show Job and his friends where, they are not, where they're not right. His passion is driven by passion for God's name. And such passion is not to be despised. And maybe those of us who are older in the faith, we would do well to recall some of our passion as younger believers. Even it it was sometimes a little misdirected. And maybe Elihu too is a challenge to us as a whole church to honour our young people, our children, our students, to honour them and to listen to them when they want to share what they believe God wants for us as a church. He's a challenge. But he's also an enigma. The commentators are divided. They're both sympathetic and they're critical of Elihu's contribution. He's definitely wordy. He's pompous, but he's also humble. He is a good listener, certainly better than the other three, and he does engage with Job's actual arguments, if you look at verse 8. But you've said, in my hearing, I heard the very words. He summarizes what Job has complained of. Not always perfectly, but he has listened. On the other hand, Elihu's insights are inevitably inadequate. He cannot possibly diagnose the specific reasons behind Job's dilemma. Because we know only God had access to those conversations with Satan at the start of the book. And if we view the book of Job as a whole, Elihu's role seems twofold. He acts as something of a corrective to what's gone before, to the dialogue between Job and his three friends. But he also acts as a forerunner to what is coming next, to what God himself will say to Job. And we notice too at the very end of the book, Elihu is not rebuked by God, unlike the other three friends. So all in all, a bit of a mixed bag, and it seems to me that we're invited to sift what Elihu says. And we are to listen when his voice chimes in with truth from the rest of Scripture. Now remember, Job had had no theology of suffering to prepare him for the awful things which happened to him. And in some senses, this is what Elihu now provides. And we too need to listen and some of us to store away these truths. Not necessarily for now, but maybe for darker times which lie ahead. So the first truth, God is present in suffering. God is present in suffering. Now, according to Elihu, Job has complained about God, verse 13, that he answers none of man's words. We too heard him back in chapter 19. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. 
Not only has God remained apparently silent through all of his suffering, but Job longs back for those days when God's intimate friendship blessed his house and when he felt the Almighty was still with me, was with me, past tense. Right now, Job feels that God has ignored him and God has abandoned him. And I want to say this is a common experience in deep suffering. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on his grief when his wife died, says this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is the one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you turn to him in gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. But according to Elihu, verse 14, God does speak. Now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. And one of the reasons we may not perceive God's voice is because we do not like the ways he chooses to speak. Elihu mentions two of them. Look at verse 15. Dreams and visions of the night. But not pleasant dreams. No, verse 16. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings. And then the second way, verse 19, or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones. And then mentions loathing of food, wasting of flesh, distress of soul. Now both these ways, nightmares and pain, are part of Job's experience. Now, neither nightmares nor anguish are ways we might choose to hear God. But Elihu affirms that God is actually present in them and speaking to us through them. Indeed, quite the opposite from ignoring us, verse 29, God does all these things to a man twice even three times. And the idea of the numbers is that God is going on doing these things because he really wants to get my attention in order to speak to me one-to-one. God may feel absent, but he is in fact ever-present, ever-speaking. Second truth, God has purpose in suffering. God has purpose in suffering. 
Another of Job's complaints, according to Elihu, is that God has been using his power unjustly. Verse 9, Job counts himself clean and free from guilt, yet God has found fault with me and then treated him as an enemy. Now, if, as Job's three friends suggested, suffering is some kind of judgment, well, Job thinks there'd be no grounds for it. It doesn't make any sense. Now, neither Job nor his friends had any theology for understanding how God might have purpose in allowing his people to suffer. And this is where Elihu seeks to open Job's eyes and ours. And he offers several good purposes that God may have. Let's look at them together. So verse 17, sorry. To turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride. Now this verse directly refers to the frightening dreams, but they could well apply to how God speaks through pain. Suffering, far from being a punishment for past sins, is actually a way of preventing future sin. It serves, you see, as a way of catching our attention, a warning signal, if you like, that we should take stock because we might be about to turn from God. Now, this could be into some specific wrongdoing. Doing something or following a course of action which might prove destructive to us, to our relationship with God. But equally, suffering might expose the danger of pride, that sinful attitude, which tells me I can manage on my own. I don't need God. And doesn't this ring true in our experience? How easy it is just to get on with life with little thought for God when the sun's shining down on me and the world's all that it should be. But on that road marked with suffering, then we cry out to God, for we know that we need him. A few years ago, I read a book by Paul Brand, a British surgeon who spent his life treating leprosy patients. And he describes a haunting scene in which he watched a woman in an Indian village roasting yams over an open fire. And when one of the yams fell off the stick, she gestured to an old man to push aside the hot red coals with his bare hands and rescue the yam. The surgeon looked on appalled as the man, having no sensation of pain, was utterly unaware that he was bent on self-destruction. The title of the book, Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. The Gift Nobody Wants. God may indeed allow suffering to warn and protect us from future harm. Verse 18, to preserve his soul from the pit. And again, verse 30, to turn back his soul from the pit. Sometimes we act 
as if sickness, hardship, relationship breakdown are the worst things that can befall someone. But in truth, they are not. I wonder, in fact, how many of us here came to Christ precisely because something started to go wrong in our lives. A relationship broke down. A business collapsed. We heard we'd got cancer. Someone special died. They may be the very wake-up call a person needs to their own mortality, to a sense that there is more to life while it lasts, and to the reality that with death comes judgment. God does not want anyone to go down to the pit, to that place of eternal separation from him that the Bible calls hell. No, He longs, verse 26, that we should see God's face and shout for joy. And end of verse 30, that the light of life may shine on him. So you could say with C.S. Lewis that suffering is a severe mercy. A severe mercy. If we choose to let God speak through it rather than just resent its interference with our well-being. And thirdly, verse 19, a man may be chastened on a bed of pain. That word chasten, it speaks of correction, of bringing us back into line with God's righteous ways rather than letting us carry on down our own wayward ones. And here Elihu chimes in with the writer to the Hebrews, who teaches us to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. And such discipline is for our good that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems Pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, those who have let themselves be trained by suffering. Peter, too, says that if we suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which is refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In truth, suffering can actually be the place of our deepest healing. I truly believe that, our deepest healing. And sometimes, though not always, we can look back and make some sense of what God has been doing. So what does all this teach us about God? That contrary to our feelings, he is fully present with you, with me, in our specific 
darkness. And we can know for certain that God is not indifferent to our pain, for in Christ he hung upon that cross and took all our wounds into his own body. More than that, it is God's mercy and God's love towards us which prompts him to allow those painful times whose purpose is to protect us, to warn us, and to discipline us. God is present. God has purpose. Finally, what will be my personal response in suffering? Well, three pointers, but I'm not suggesting any of them is easy. Firstly, hold on. Hold on. Knowing that suffering does serve a higher purpose, a purpose that can produce lasting change in our lives, is what helps us as Christians to hold on to God all through the storm. Suffering is not pointless. And under God's loving hand, it can be the very place where we become conformed to the likeness of his Son, the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. Trust God. Trust God. Verse 12, for God is greater than man. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than man's ways. They may not make any sense to us, for we are human and God is God. But God is not capricious, my friends. God is good. He can be trusted. And I encourage you to say, in the words of Job himself, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And thirdly, look for songs in the night. Glance ahead to chapter 35 and verse 10. Elihu refers to God as my maker who gives songs in the night. Elihu does not say how God does this. Given his youth, he might have had no personal experience of them. But I tell you, even in the deepest darkness, God brings to mind words from psalms and spiritual songs which can be a lifeline. We may sing them through veils of tears, but we sing them nonetheless because our God is the rock, the faithful, unchanging one. Let's pray. Lord, we asked you to speak to us. And in this time of silence, I pray that each one of us would hear from you. We're asking for each one of us to hear something from you through where we are now or for what is to come.
Loving God, help us to hold on and trust you and give us songs in the night, we pray. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.